Father, we confess this day that it is through the torn side of Christ our Lord, whereby we have secured entry into your presence. The presence once guarded by the angels from the realms of glory, the flaming sword of the cherubim standing, guarding the gate of Eden. We thank you that through Christ, taking those wounds on our behalf, we now enter in to the place of your abiding, where we, your people, are reconciled through blood sacrifice, through Christ alone, into your marvelous grace and the glorious promises of the gospel and the hope of eternal life. As Christ has risen from the dead, so we look forward to our own resurrection one day. And in the meantime, we thank you for the sufficiency of your word that equips your church for the battles and the difficulties of the journey between now and the full consummation of your kingdom realities. As we open your scriptures today, I pray that the Spirit would use the delivery of the same to encourage and to equip the hearts of the faithful, to build within us joy that will be our strength, to sharpen our confession, which will announce the truth, to give us faith and endurance along the way through trial, and to proclaim the message of Christ as triumphant Lord to all who will bow the knee and listen, and to do so, Lord, consistently as you grant us grace to apply your scriptures this day. In all of this, we pray that you would be glorified, that the lost would be drawn to repentance and faith, and that those who have confessed faith in Christ would be further armored for the battle and equipped with a sword to take ground and territory for you. And I pray that this would result in your church shining all the brighter to the praise of Christ alone. In his name we pray. Amen. This morning, what a joy and privilege it is to gather as the saints of God and to open up our scriptures together. Would you do so by turning to Psalm 119, 41 through 48 today, and let us consider the sixth stanza in this great acrostic song, Psalm 119. The title of this morning's message is Vav, which is, as I'm told, the Hebrew pronunciation of W-A-W as it appears, I trust in your translation, the sixth letter in the Hebrew alphabet, Vav and then a subtitle, The Trial of Scoffers. And you'll note that we have been going, marking the challenges that are presented in each successive section of Psalm 119. And after the introduction in section one, we've marked five of them so far, and today we add another challenge for which our author proclaims the Word of God is sufficient for. The challenge is the scoffers or enemies of the faith and the sufficient tool to oppose them is the word of God. Thus we have Vav, the trial of scoffers today, and this aim to equip believers to answer the powerful fool. That Proverbs 2, 4 through 5, or 26, excuse me, 4 through 5, uh, give us instructions in a proverbial or a kind of a short wisdom format of answering the fool, that is the one who does not believe or affirm the obvious that Christ is Lord and this is his world and bow before that truth. This, according to the scriptures, is a fool. A fool is one who scoffs at the reality that is undeniable of God, his word, and his world. Thus, believers are equipped to answer the powerful fool in Psalm 119, as we see the word of God sufficient to give us a word to answer those who taunt us, even among those who are in authority, indeed before kings themselves. With that Word of introduction, would you stand for the reading of the scriptures today out of reverence and considering your hearing, Psalm 119, verses 41 through 48. Here is the word of God. Vav, 
Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place. For I have sought your precepts, I will also speak of your testimonies before kings, and shall not be put to shame. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Just a reminder of the format of an acrostic song. Of course, an acrostic psalm or song is one where portions of the song begin with a Hebrew letter and then move successfully, or, uh, successively through the alphabet. This is the sixth stanza of the great acrostic Psalm 119, which present us eight verses beginning with the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, as I've mentioned, Vav, in the original language. The great theme of our psalm, as I have submitted, is the sufficiency of the Word of God. And this sufficiency of the Word of God is magnified by declaring its power or ability to counter trial by trial by trial. And in this section, we have a fifth example of a challenge that the Word of God will defeat. Our author adds to the list of trials, proclaiming not only that the Scriptures are sufficient for, as you recall, the tests of youth, sojourning, sorrows, and worldly temptations, the previous four sections, but also today we find the Word of God is sufficient for the trials presented by scoffing unbelievers, those who are hostile to our Christian faith. We see in verse 42, because of the word of God, our author proclaims, then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me. This week, just to introduce an application at the beginning of this message, this would be an example of a scoffer, one who taunts the Lord presumptuously in full view of the public and who retains a position of some influence. This week I heard an audio clip that has resurfaced lately, and it struck me as extra disturbing, in spite of the general tenor of the degenerate corruption that is so obvious in our world today. Uh, President Joe Biden, like any king of old, has himself a court, that is, administrators or cabinet members, advisors. He gathers around himself. All presidents do this. Among them, he has appointed a self-proclaimed gay man, Pete Buttigieg, that is a homosexual who, by virtue of his identity preferences, we presume has been elevated to this place of influence. He, Pete Buttigieg, has a so-called husband whose name happens to be Chasten. And it surfaced this week that there was an occasion in the 2020 presidential campaign for some influence over a young group of so-called LGBTQ youth gathering for an Iowa primary on the campaign trail. At this campaign event, this so-called husband of this homosexual man led children in a so-called Pledge of Allegiance to the so-called Rainbow Pride flag. There's a lot of so-calleds in this story. Pictures of the event I saw online ironically blurred the faces of those in attendance why do you suppose those who are repeating this Pledge of Allegiance 
following this now influential individual connected to the court, uh, as, if you will, or administration or cabinet of Joe Biden? Why do you suppose that the faces of many in the audience were blurred? Well, perhaps you guessed it. It's because they're minors. In other words, to protect their identity because they are young. We don't want them to just be in the public view, people to be able to know who they are. They're underage after all. But ironically, apparently it is just fine to lead them in a pledge, including these words, quote, I pledge my heart to the rainbow of the not-so-typical gay camp, one camp full of pride, indivisible, with affirmation and equal rights for all. Now, anyone who takes seriously the Word of God, as recorded unchangeably in Psalm 119, this kind of leading of young people astray reminds us, ought to remind us instantly, not just of the Old Testament, but also the New. The Bible is one unified whole. And the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew 18, 6, that say, such an action, such a proclamation is worthy of a stone necklace and being cast into the heart of the sea. Why? Because it's professions like this, it's the taunting language like this, that is responsible for leading the young ones astray. And to do so in such a high-handed, presumptuous, blasphemous manner, manner that they would co-opt the very symbol of God's gracious deliverance from the judgment that sins like homosexuality deserve, namely the rainbow. And then to pledge some perverse sexual identity, affiliation, and affirmation by that same token. This is the kind of high-handed taunting that takes place in the realms of power in our day and age. And this is why I said last week, if there is a nuclear bomb glow on the horizon of a major population center, even in our state, one thing is true, we deserve it. We need to realize that those who taunt the Lord Jesus Christ and turn his word on its head, Pete Buttigieg, after all, claims to be a Christian. You cannot claim to be a Christian in your words and deny with your lifestyle and your confession and your affirmation all of these things that are celebrated in Psalm 119. What are these things? These things are the word of truth, the rules, the law, the precepts, the testimony, and the commandments of God, of Yahweh. The possessive, divine uh, right of God to proclaim righteousness, justice, and truth. The kind of blasphemy that is featured in this example that I gave you can be universally understood by every true believer who holds to the Word of God, that this is hell-worthy propaganda channeling Sodom itself. Hell-worthy propaganda channeling Sodom itself is a phrase I would use to describe much of the messaging in realms of power in our day and in our nation. Jesus spared no words in condemning this kind of thing, saying that it would be better, as I mentioned before, if a millstone would be hung around the neck of someone who would dare to do such a thing, to lead astray the naive, the impressionable, and the little ones. This clip that I mentioned to you was circulating in the wake of backlash against a bill in Florida that seeks to curb the, in the slightest degree perverse indoctrination in something like grades kindergarten through third grade in public schools. In other words, that bill, however slight, the uh, restriction might be, says it should be illegal for teachers to speak on subject matter of mature and I would hasten to add perverse nature of sexual identity for children who are in those young and impressionable ages. 
The left has labeled this thing the so-called don't say gay bill, another so-called because it's another lie. Others have countered by saying, no, this is the anti-grooming bill, which is exactly correct. This perverse indoctrination has become the standard of our day. It's become the celebrated civic virtue and the taunters, the scoffers, the mockers, and the willful rebels against the word of God have taken so much ground that it can be discouraging. I I suspect most of you in the hearing of this message, if you haven't been run out of this church already, by the unequivocal stance on the unchanging word of God, you're here because you believe it's true. I suspect most of you in the hearing of this message are equally outraged as you hear these kinds of things. But listen to me. How many of us, if we are honest, also feel a sense of helplessness and defeat and insecurity in the face of such blatant, rampant, and loud evil in our day? This is what I struggle with. I don't struggle with so much that this is right or wrong, but a sense of defeat and helplessness, a sort of insecurity, inferiority complex in the midst of such suffocating wickedness that is proclaimed around us everywhere we look in the areas of influence and uh, power in our culture. Now, saints, this is where we need Psalm 119, 41 through 48 to step in and equip us, to equip us as believers, to equip us as the church to answer the powerful fool. This passage is key, our message, our section today, our verses today, for building the believer's credibility and confidence in a wicked culture. The scriptures are sufficient to provide an answer for him who taunts me, our author says. Here's a heading. Credibility and confidence assured by the following. Let me expand that. The, the believer's credibility You know what you're talking about? You do if you know the Word of God. Confidence. Should you have faith that your Word has a weight behind it? You should if you recognize it's the Word of God. Credibility. The believer's credibility and confidence is assured and strengthened or reinforced by the following. Number one, these are categories according to statements in our passage today. Covenant. Credibility and confidence assured by covenant. Number two, credibility and confidence assured by means. Number three, Credibility and confidence assured by guarantee. And number four, by vow. Covenant, this would be the your statements. There's a number of them in our text today. Means, that would be the four statements, if you will. Statements that begin with the word for. Guarantee, that would be be the shall statements. And then vow would be the I will statements. So that's the basic order which we'll consider our text today. First of all, the believer's credibility and confidence assured by covenant. In verse 41, we have some your statements. Let your steadfast love come to me, our author says. Your salvation according to your promise. So this is a possessive word, right? Your. It indicates ownership. So you could ask the question this way. Who owns steadfast love? Who owns salvation? Who owns promises that are assured and secure and everlasting and more powerful than the, taunters and the, than the taunters' claims of our day? Well, the answer is Yahweh, who is the object of this song. This song over and over and over again speaks of your rules, your commandments, your testimonies, your statutes, your word, your precepts, your word, your law, your rules, your testimonies, just following the highlighter. I've submitted to you like the highlighter challenge where you highlight every a synonym for the word of God, and for a covenant revelation 
in Psalm 119. And by my count, we're up to about 50 of them. And almost everyone begins with that possessive indicator, your covenant, your statements, or the your statements. And here we have three, steadfast love, salvation, and promise. This is a little bit of a departure from the other your statements in the text. In other words, if you put two and two together, the psalmist recognizes this, that without the gospel has said, or steadfast love, without the grace of God granting to him by God's steadfast love both salvation and the promises of the covenant, he would not be able to stand against the taunters. He would not be able to understand and proclaim with authority the promise, the word, the word of truth, the rules, the law, the precepts, the testimonies, the commandments, and the statutes. He wouldn't be able to understand them or obey them or delight in them. So it is priority. It is a precondition of authority and being able to answer the fool. Our author recognizes that one must be saved. This is an Old Testament way of saying you must be born again. Let your steadfast love come to me. Steadfast love in Hebrew, this is the chesed, love of God, which means the covenant-keeping favor of the Lord by His mercy and grace alone. The covenant-keeping favor of the Lord by His mercy and grace alone. This chesed love, salvation, and promises, these are what kept Jacob, in spite of all his false sins, frailties, and uh, transgressions against the Almighty that we've been documenting through the course of Genesis, especially in chapters 30 and 31 as we've considered them of late. This is the steadfast love that came to Jacob, delivering with it the Lord's salvation and His promise of securing His Son, delivering Him from the bondage of the oppressor Laban unto the promised land in spite of exile, guiding Him, guarding Him through trial unto eternal life. This is the hesed, love of the Lord, that inspired him to set up a monolithic pillar, a stone of witness, a testimony and an altar to the delivering power of God, by which, Abraham, or by which Jacob confessed that the promises of God were stronger than exile as he set up that pillar at Bethel, the house of God, by which he confessed the promises of God are stronger than his enemies by, uh, that he confessed with that pillar at Gilead, and by which he confessed the promises of God are stronger than death upon the burial of the beloved life, wife Rachel, where he set up there in Ephrathah or Bethlehem, that stone of witness. This is Jacob recognizing what the psalmist recognizes here, that steadfast love is a prerequisite to honoring the Lord. It's a prerequisite to confidence and capability to stand against our enemies. It's a prerequisite to obedience to him, to walk in his word and his rules and his statutes. It's a prerequisite, it's a necessary condition for us to be able to understand, appreciate, and delight in the law of the Lord. It's interesting, there's so many parallels in Psalm 119 that you can just get lost tracing them. One of them I noticed in our passage today is that there's something like nine votive statements, which is the adjective form of vow. These are verbs of devotion. These are actions that indicate a commitment by the author. And they are as follows. Keep, walk, sought, speak, find, love, lift, love, and meditate. meditate. These are devotional commitments, words, actions that our author makes in light of a yes. Nine references to the Word of God. Word, word of truth, rules, 
law, precepts, testimonies, commandments, commandments, and statutes. It's just a beautiful symmetry. The psalmist realizes that with the weight and the uh, honor, the amazing power of God's word, its authority and its beauty, that it is worthy of his sole attention and his consideration, his devotion, his commitment. And thus he will keep the Lord's law. He will walk in his ways. He will seek out his rules. He will speak of his commandments. I'm mixing and matching some of these, but you get the idea. He will find his precepts. He will love his rules. He will meditate on his law and so forth. Thus, the believer's credibility and confidence are assured by covenant. When God extends to us, just as he did the author of this psalm, his steadfast love in Christ and his salvation in Jesus' death on Calvary and his promise of salvation from our sin because Christ has paid for it and the guarantee of eternal life because he rose from the dead, that likewise is a prerequisite. It's a New Testament fulfillment of this has said gospel here. It gives us the power. It gives us the confidence and the credibility to stand against those who taunt Jesus Christ. To stand against those in a hostile culture who mock and deride and scoff at our faith. And to do so with boldness and confidence in spite of the majority such as it is. Point number two means, again, the believer's credibility and confidence is assured and reinforced by means. And these would be the four statements. 42, verse 42, verse 43, 45, and 47. Let's just kind of chart these. Go to 42 to start with. Then I shall have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. So you see that trusting in the word is means whereby our author is equipped to answer those who taunt him. Trusting in God's word. It's a four statement. It's a condition. It's, a, it's something that's necessary or it's a way or a tool or an instrument whereby he can stand strong in his faith, trusting in the word. Likewise, verse 43, And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. There again, hoping in the rules of God is the condition or it's the means, the instrument whereby he will stay consistent in his faith and in his confession. He will continue to confess Jesus Christ is Lord, faith in the future Messiah in his case. We, in our case, on our deathbed, confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the bitter end of life in this veil of tears when our hope is in God's rules. Meaning that we trust God with our future because of the prophetic assurance of his word, and his rules, the things that he has written down. 45, another so statement or four statement, and I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. Again, seeking out God's precepts, diligent study of his word, that is the instrument, the means whereby our author says he will walk in a wide place. More on that in a little bit. And then our last mention of four statement, verse 47, for I find my delight in your commandment, which I love. Oh, excuse me, I think that's the wrong reference. Um, I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. That's verse uh, 48. I'll also speak of your testimonies before kings. It shall not be put to shame. Anyways, I've lost um, 
I lost my uh, reference there. But uh, suffice it to say, if you uh, chart those so statements there, you find that in these are the conditions or the instrument or the rules, or, or excuse me, or the uh, means whereby we can stand. Now in verse 47, we have this. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Now, uh, these, this delight in the commandments of the Lord is uh, important. These four statements uh, indicate to us that with our heart having our priorities or our uh, convictions having our priorities in place, we will have strength to stand with credibility and confidence against the scoffers of our faith. He, putting these two uh, ideas together, we can say it this way, perhaps. Too many find their delight in access and influence, delight in the law of God and the uh, delight in the law of God alone will enable you to speak unashamedly before kings. Another way to say it, your ability to stand with credibility and confidence when your faith is mocked and derided, when it's challenged and opposed, your ability to stand depends where, in what you or where you find your delight. If you find your delight in the commandments of the Lord which, and you love them, if you lift up your hands towards His commandments, if you meditate on His statutes, if you find your delight in the things of God and the Word of God, and not in the uh, influence or access, you know, the celebrity status, or you become intimidated by the powers that be, then you will be able to have the credibility and confidence uh, assured that is necessary for you to stand. So we see in these mean statements, trusting in God's Word, hoping in His rules, and seeking out His precepts. It's something of a devotional summary, delighting in His commandments. It's something of a devotional summary. It's conditions for, again, credibility and confidence, providing an answer for the scoffer. In Proverbs 26, which I referenced before, we have these instructions in wisdom literature form. Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. As I mentioned before, the instructions in this account give us uh, directives on how to answer the, our, our enemies, especially those who oppose the Word of God. Verse 4, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Now there, some have said, oh, that, that's contradictory. How can you both uh, not answer a fool according to his folly and answer a fool according to his folly? Well, the answer is this. <clears throat> Depending on the circumstances and the situation, you can answer a fool in two ways. By demonstrating the absurdity of his position, and the second way is by demonstrating the superiority of the Lord. How can you say this with credibility and confidence if you don't know the opposite claim than the wickedness that the world is promoting? How can you stand with credibility and confidence and condemn the words of perversion and deception that are being championed by those uh, examples I mentioned before 
even in positions of authority and influence among the cabinet members and, their, uh, and people associated with them in Joe Biden's presidency. How can you oppose them? How can you answer a fool that's that powerful? It's one thing to answer your, uh, someone that you know is less intimidating, has less of a reach, and has less um, you know, force behind his claims. But it's another thing to answer the powerful fool. Well, Psalm 119 answers this by saying, the means whereby confidence and credibility can be gained to stand against the powerful fool is to trust the word of God, to place your hope in his rules, to seek out his precepts and to delight in his commandments. One of the, I would submit to you, those who do confess Jesus Christ and yes, are probably true believers, yet cower in fear in the day in which we live, one of the reasons we do so is we are sensitive of the objections of the unbeliever. We are nervous with what kind of response that we would get if we were just to state plainly and unequivocally what we believe from Scripture. Well, what if they answer this way or that? What if they assume I'm a bigot? What if they condemn me for being discriminatory? And so on and so forth. I was at a funeral once bringing a message about Jesus' sovereignty over death. And I could tell that the other minister in this case was very sensitive to the objections of the average citizen out there thinking, it's not fair that this man would be taken from us this soon. And so catering to their sense of unfairness, he compromised the sovereignty of God and declared this man's death as absurd. And of course, I wanted to stand up and say, if there is a God, there is no such thing as absurdity. Perhaps I should have. You know, of course, there was the social anxiety of disrupting a funeral that kicked in and prevented me from saying so. However, you better believe I did everything in my power in proclaiming the true gospel as far as I knew, know from Scripture to counter that claim. There is no absurdity. Well, how can you explain then tragedy when it strikes? How can you possibly trust that a good God would do thus and so? These are the objections that we're sensitive to. And if we care more or fear more or concern more, with what the enemy would counter our position with than we are with the, uh, the, uh, secure, or the assurance and the boldness and the clarity and the authority of the word of God, then we will cower in the face of scoffers. But if we recognize that every opposition and every objection to our faith is an opportunity to proclaim the authority of Jesus Christ, and it's an evangelistic opportunity to declare someone to someone they must trust in him to be saved, then suddenly we, have, we are equipped with the credibility and the courage to face the enemies of our faith. So let me give you two examples. One is just a reminder from a prior message. What if someone says to you, do you believe in the Bible? Isn't the Bible discriminatory against lepers would be an example. And you might say, uh, yes, the Old absolutely, I believe in the Bible, which discriminated against lepers in the Old Testament. They were a picture that God discriminates between the unholy and the holy. And what that picture meant is that there is no uncleanliness and no evil that is allowed in his presence. Are you ready to repent of the leprosy of your sin that you might be welcomed into the fellowship of Almighty God? I urge you to do that. Now, someone might come to you and say, Oh, isn't it true that the Bible required capital punishment, that someone should be killed for a gathering of sticks on the Sabbath? That happened after all. Or isn't it the case that in the Bible that someone who is, uh, practices openly and unrepentantly homosexuality should be killed? And uh, you're nervous about this. Doesn't the Bible endorse slavery and you're nervous how you might answer? Well, let me tell you what I've come to answer those questions. Did you know every sin is a capital offense? 
Just remember that line. Did you know every sin, ultimately speaking, is a capital offense? God is righteous and requires just payment for sin. And the only way to escape that capital offense, offense, only way to escape that judgment of condemnation, death, and hell is to turn from your sins to your Savior who died in your place. Jesus had to die because every sin deserves death. Repent of your sin. Trust Jesus' death to save you, and you can escape the wrath to come. You see, every objection can be turned as we understand the Bible and get confidence in what it says into an opportunity with credibility and confidence proclaim the gospel. Now, this doesn't mean we aren't nervous when we do this, and there's all kinds of natural concerns that come in, and sure, it takes practice, but we can have faith that God will equip us in those, or in those opportunities to give us a word and wisdom that our enemies cannot comprehend. Psalm 119 encourages us in this way. Third major point, moving more quickly, the believer's credibility and confidence is assured and reinforced by guarantee. 42, 45, and 46, these will be the shall statements. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And then 45, and I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. Then 46, I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame. So our confidence and our credibility can be assured when we remember in these shall statements that there is a guarantee for those who build their life and order their thoughts and their words according to God's word. First of all, there's, a, there's the guarantee that the taunters will be sufficiently answered. Then I shall have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. Again, the means trusting in the word as we mentioned before, and then the result the sufficiency of that word to prepare us, to give us the guarantee that the enemies of our faith, the taunters, the scoffers, will be answered. 45 wide places. Then I shall walk in a wide place where I have sought your precepts. This is a guarantee for those who build their life on the word of God. We will walk in wide places. What does this mean? Well, it's a poetic way of describing thriving joy, being liberated, well, a narrow place is restricted confines refers to in prison and shackles and bondage. But when we are set free from sin, we are set free to live as God has designed us. And the horizons of opportunity and the freedom of Jesus Christ open up to us to fulfill the purpose and design and to embrace the meaning for which we were created. It opens up our life to the vision of wide places of glorifying and following the Lord and serving Him and honoring Him, and building our life on His precepts and testimonies, and ordering our affairs according to His commandments and statutes and so forth. And of course, the picture of confinement in Egypt, you know, and the exodus unto deliverance in the promised land is in view there. Now, this wide place isn't a physical location necessarily, but it's a, it's a freedom of the soul to spread its wings according to its original design, to live out the meaning that everyone lusts after and strives for in their own sin and constantly falls short and just heaps up debt upon debt for which they will be judged until they repent of meaning and significance and joy 
and their manufacturing heaven with the means of their disposal, their own works and the false promises of some utopian humanist vision. As we repent of those things and put them aside, we realize that the shackles break from our wrist and we are set free to live as God has originally intended in glorious communion and fellowship and reconciliation. The condemnation of our sin, those shackles which once bound us, clattering at the altar of repentance and the joy for which we were created like the blame man who is healed at the touch of Jesus Christ through his apostles, laughing, leaping, and dancing and praising the Lord. This is the promise, the guarantee of those who live their life according to the word of God. They will have a sufficient answer for their taunters and they will embrace wide places and they will be unashamed. Verse 46, I will also speak of your testimonies before kings, and here's that shall statement, and shall not be put to shame. Paul himself wrote in Romans 1:16, as I recall, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power to save for all who believe, Jews and Greeks alike, right? And Paul confessed this and lived this, and not only did he understand that the gospel was the power of God to save both Jew and Gentile, but he also knew it was the power of God to save everyone from Eutychus, the dude who fell out of the window, to Agrippa, the king for whom he testified and gave his account of conversion, one of the powerful leaders of the Roman Empire. And Paul went all the way through the court system of Rome until presumably he testified before Caesar himself. He appealed to him and to Caesar he must go. The lesser magistrate says, so Paul, with authority and credibility, with confidence, proclaimed to kings like Agrippa, and at the end of his testimony he said, you would convince me to become a Christian as recognizing that this man spoke with authority. So Paul is a good example of the unashamed uh, preparation to confess the truth of Jesus Christ, even in the face of an enemy empire, namely the Romans at the time. What gave him this credibility and confidence? Well, it was his assurance of his covenant salvation. God had extended to Paul his steadfast love even though Paul knew he deserved capital punishment. After all, he set his face to kill so many members of the true church. Paul knew by direct revelation from Jesus himself that the promises of eternal life were his because Jesus had died in his sake, or in his stead, for his sake. So the credibility and confidence of this apostle was built on the same things that the psalmist declared in 119 on covenant and the means trusting in his word, Paul constantly expounding the word, hope in his rules, applying his precepts, delighting in his commandments. Turn with me to Matthew 22, the messianic quintessential example, if you will, of answering one's enemies comes in the ministry of the Messiah himself when Jesus Christ silences his critics. And Matthew 22 has a record of this several times over, and it culminates in the end, with this statement, or with these words, this in event encounter in verse 41 and following. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. These were experts. These were intimidating. You know, the Pharisees 
and the Sadducees, the religious rulers, had the legal authority to stone you for blasphemy. They could just decide, pick up stones, and they were allowed to, under the civil order of the day, to destroy you, to kill you. What gave Jesus the credibility and confidence? Well, he was the Word made flesh, but here we see by example him applying the Word of God, silencing the taunters. And he did it by pointing out that the Trinity and the revelation of that in this form preceded even his incarnation. How can the Lord speak to his Lord unless there are two persons in the one God? How can David affirm this Lord unless there is a greater, a son of David who would come, who is himself Lord? And suddenly the enemies who once treated Jesus as a mere imposter zip it. And yes, they were still rebellious. And yes, God permitted them to kill his son, but they couldn't keep him in the grave. This message of defeat of Jesus' enemies that is issued here with reference to his word would also be proclaimed when he rose from the dead and proved once and for all that every naysayer, every scoffer, every enemy, every rebel will be subdued. Jesus has given us the example of using the word of God to defeat our greatest enemies. Is this not what he did at his temptation? It is written. You think the Pharisees and the Sadducees are intimidating enemy? What about the devil himself? Hey, why don't you command these stones to become bread? It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. The enemy of your souls is knocking at the door, giving you reasonable arguments it would at first glance appear to deny him, to compromise your faith. How can you have the confidence the conviction, and the credibility to stand against him. The same way Jesus modeled, the same way Psalm 119 holds out, and that is to stand on the word of God, to love it, to trust it, to hope in it, to seek it out, and to delight in it, etc. Finally, this morning, vow. In light of all of this, there are I will statements, a number of them. In verse 44 of back in Psalm 119, our primary passage today, in light of these glorious truths, the psalmist makes a commitment, and this is a pattern that happens or that we witness throughout the course of his song. In verse 44, he says this, I will keep your law continually forever and ever. 46, I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame. 48, I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love and I will meditate on your statutes. Consistency of conviction. Now, as these vow statements are a commitment, they're a statement of decisive action that our author issues in light of what the Word of God has spoken. And as his discipline and devotion are dedicated to following the Lord, it builds in his life a testimony credibility, and confidence. As he begins to obey the Lord in increasing measure by keeping his law continually, as he continues to echo that with his speech and with his testimony, I will speak of your testimonies before kings. As he demonstrates in his desires that he delights in the commandments of the Lord, the credibility and confidence is being built to stand against the taunters, to even confront kings. I submit to you that Psalm 119, 41 through 48, if we are to practice the outline that is given to us here, it will sufficiently prepare us to stand before kings even in our day, to have a word of rebuke and repentance. The compassionate call to repentance 
and the firm fear of God rebuke that is deserving of anyone's statement of rebellion against the Lord of glory, even today. If you delight in the commandments of the Lord, if you walk in His precepts, you will be able to speak your testimony before kings, and you shall not be put to shame. So intimidating, isn't it, to think of yourself testifying before Congress and calling that whole body politic to repentance? It's pretty intimidating, isn't it, to think of yourself on Bill Maher's you know, politically incorrect show and preaching the gospel before a televised audience of a million people? It's pretty intimidating, isn't it, to think of yourself in handcuffs standing before a judge who has the ability to throw you into prison for your so-called hate speech or intolerance, which merely calls out sin as something that needs to be repented of, depending on the tolerance of that country to the Christian worldview. It's pretty intimidating. But in our text today, we have sufficient grounds for immunity to this intimidation. Let's just use the, exa- let's just use the illustration of a vaccine that actually works. A vaccine against the intimidation of the powerful fool That is what's prescribed to us in Psalm 119. Immunity to intimidation before powerful figures is found in a devotion to that which is higher than the king, higher than Pete Buttigieg, higher than Joe Biden, higher than the laws of mere men, higher than the threats of an invading Vladimir Putin. Immunity to intimidation before powerful figures is found in a devotion to that which is higher than the king. Men bow before their highest conceivable authority. And the President of the United States, the Supreme Court, and the laws such as they are, are not the highest conceivable authority. We serve a higher authority still. We serve Jesus Christ, King of Kings, and His Word, which is immutable, unchangeable, and true. Everything else withers, fails, and fades, but His Word stands forever. Those who heed Psalm 119, the highest authority, is set forth in the Scriptures, and it's embodied in Jesus Christ, the King of Kings Himself. This explains the authority of a prophet Nathan before a King David in 2 Samuel 11:7. The man has the power to say, I don't like what you said, and tell his general to kill him in an instant. Caught in adultery and in his sin, He is confronted by the prophet Nathan. How does Nathan do this with credibility and confidence? He does so because he serves a higher authority still. He's immune to the intimidation of a sinful king because he is devoted to something higher, that is Jesus Christ and his word. Now in that case, the king repented and Nathan did not suffer for the truth. But in John the Baptist's case, he issued to Herod this proclamation, it is not lawful for you to have her. Speaking of Herod's sexual sin and taking his brother's wife, Matthew 14, 3-5. And John the Baptist, for this statement, gave his head. Nevertheless, that that indictment stood because God's word cannot ultimately be contravened. And John the Baptist, knowing full well that Herod would probably kill him, had the credibility and the confidence, nevertheless, to stand for the truth. Why? Because he served a higher king. Immunity to intimidation before powerful figures is found in devotion to that which is higher. Make a closing application. The last verse of our text, I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love. I will meditate on your statutes. 
that picture, again, a poetic one of lifting up the hands toward the commandments of the Lord, what does that mean? People lift their hands towards things that they honor. Uh, people lift their hands towards things that they're excited about. You know, it's this gesture of unfettered joy, or it's this uh, a gesture of honor, reverence, and praise, or it's a gesture of desperation. I need rescue. I need help. And all come into play. Honor, rescue. Lift up your hands to the Lord and his word. Now, if you think of the story of Lot, which we covered in our message last week, it was the hand of Lot that the angel grasped and pulled him out of Sodom. And just to come full circle to the original illustration I gave you today, what will pull us out of our Sodom-like values? What will pull us out of our Sodom and Gomorrah values? It's when his people reach out their hands to the Lord, and the Lord grasps our hand by his law, by his precepts, by his statutes, and mercifully yanks us out of the values and out of the idolatry of Sodom and Gomorrah. Stand for this. Reach out your hand to the Lord. He will save you. Reach out your hand to his commandments and pray that this country, this nation, and yes, kings and people in authority would cry out in desperation, would realize their hell-worthy sin, would repent and reach out their hand to the law of God and recognize, I, I know that I fall short of your standards. I have led children astray. I have confessed rebellion against your authority and your glory. I reach out my hand. I lift up my hands to you, to your commandments. May I love them. May I meditate on them. And for those sinners who do this, the Lord grabs that hand and yanks them, just like he did Lot and his family, out of Sodom and gives them eternal life through Jesus Christ. This is something to remember as we pray for repentance in our society, and this is something to be committed to as we seek to have the credibility and confidence to stand when the world is hostile to our faith. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the assurances of your scripture and for the sufficiency of your word. I pray that it would prepare us to stand strong and confident in a day when our faith is challenged. I pray, Lord, that your word would go forth under these conditions and issue a clarion call of repentance, no matter who the rebel is, whether kings or our next-door neighbor. I pray, Father, that you would equip your church through passages like this to stand, Lord, with credibility and confidence to oppose the enemy, and that in so doing, that this world would see a revival and that your glory would cover this earth as the waters cover the sea in increasing measure as was prophesied of old, and that the light of truth would shine more brightly through those you've anointed and commissioned to proclaim the gospel, even those who you sent forth, and we, their uh, lineage spiritually in Matthew 28, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to those who will hear and see. Lord, we pray that you would bring in converts and a mighty work of repentance in our day so that we might uh, worship you and glorify you, not just in your power to judge, but also in your power to save. Thank you for this time that we've had in your scriptures. Seal it upon our heart, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.